Ephesians chapter 2. This morning, Marlon Jones was a medical doctor, a pastor in London in the 1900s, way back in the 1900s. And uh, he said this We must grasp once again the idea of church membership as being the membership of the body of Christ and as the biggest honor which can come from man's way in this world. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and expressing ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body to the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. But through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would give us what we need this morning. We are a needy people. Give us what we need, Lord. That your name might be praised. We pray these things in Jesus' name. What makes a church a church? What is necessary to have a church? Is it a building? The church that sent our family out here to Ohio at the end of 2011, really 2012, they're called the Reformation Bible Church, Concord, New Hampshire. They have not had a, a building of their own since their founding, it's somewhere around 2009. And even for the past six or seven years, they've rented space on, on Sundays from a Christian school. But this summer, they actually lost their meeting space when a bigger church came in and wanted to pay more rent. The, the, the bigger, fancier church plant actually displaced a smaller church. So now they pay incredibly high rent at a local public school. But we all know that the building is not what makes the church. We know this. So let me ask the question another way. Might a group of people who claim to be Christians, claim to be the church, 
And might it be, become so unlike what a church should be that they no longer should be called a church? Can a group of people who assemble together and claim the name of Christ, is there anything that they can do to cause them to no longer be called a church in the eyes of God? Absolutely there is. We would all agree on that. The early centuries of the Christian church, there was really little controversy over what was the true church. There was only one uh, worldwide church, the, the visible church throughout the world. And that was, of course, the true church. We can trace its development, the development of the church, through the book of Acts, as the gospel spreads really to the ends of the earth. And then in the epistles, so the writings largely of the apostles, we can see the connections that the, the churches had with one another throughout the writings, especially of the apostle Paul, who was constantly sending greetings and mentioning Christians of, of other churches in his letters. He was purposefully drawing lines of connection between um, distinct churches, gatherings, assemblies of Christians. And even himself acted really as an authority over them, over multiple churches, as he corrected error and brought encouragement and instruction to them through his writings. During the centuries after the New Testament was written, as the church continued to grow and spread, a system of, of church oversight developed. Really, kind of from Paul's writings in First Timothy and Titus, especially, but a few other places as well. Entire regions eventually would have bishops or overseers, and then local churches would have pastors and elders and deacons who would see to the, to the affairs of each local congregation. Soon, they would also have church buildings that everybody could see. Eventually, they would mark them as distinct from other buildings by putting a steeple. On them, or even in some other ways, felt One of the tasks of those early bishops, uh, one of their tasks in particular, was to meet with the clearly defined biblical doctrine, what the Bible taught. So, throughout Christian history, there have been councils uh, who would develop statements saying essentially, here's what we believe. The Council of Nicaea, for example, developed. At that point, any heretics who were found to be in serious doctrinal error, disagreeing with those statements, they, they were simply excluded from the church. They were told, no, you're not a part of the church. You believe and teach false doctrine. Now fast forward about 1,500 years to the time of the Reformation. The crucial question comes up during this time, the early 1500s. How can we recognize a true church? In order to answer that question, church leaders had to decide what are the what are the marks, what are the characteristics of a, of a true church? Scripture certainly speaks of false churches, but what are the distinguishing characteristics that lead us to recognize a true church of Jesus Christ? Two of the most prominent reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin. For the most part, they were in agreement over the question, this question of what, what constituted a true church. The Lutheran statement of faith, uh, it's called the Augsburg Confession, was written in about 1530, so very early on in the time of the Reformation. 
It defined the, the church as being, quote, the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments rightly administered. Similarly, a few years later, John Calvin wrote this. He said, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. Well, this is all in response to what the Roman Catholic Church has become. Suffice it to say that the Reformation brought us back to the Scriptures to show us that a, what, a, what a biblical church is. That it is, A, a place where the gospel is rightly preached, proclaimed. And B, a place where the sacraments or ordinances are administered according to God's word. Now we believe that there are two ordinances, two commands that Christ left the church to regularly observe. And we are to observe them, we believe, together as a church, as one church. Those are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And baptism, by definition, is symbolic of a, of a believer's salvation of their new birth, of being immersed into Christ, and therefore into his body, into his church. Baptism, rightly administered, is the church, along with the believer, all of us, proclaiming the day that believer being baptized has been redeemed by Christ, brought into covenant with him, brought into relationship with Christ. Baptism is the Christian proclaiming, I am a new creation. I have been born again. And it's the church testifying to that fact, saying, yes, we can see that you've been washed free from the penalty of your sin, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The church proclaims that with every baptism. The Lord's Supper is the church proclaiming together as one. Christ's death until he comes in communion with each other. And it's reserved for, frankly, obedient believers. Eating the bread and drinking the cup is the church together in communion proclaiming, We are his. Come quickly, Lord. We could argue, I have many times, that the right administration of baptism, in the right way, according to the scriptures, the right administration of the Lord's Supper presumes church discipline. In other words, when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, that when calling someone who, who claims Christ and yet is caught in their sin, willfully sinning, when calling them to repent of their sins, and if they refuse, they refuse to listen to anyone, even the whole church, Jesus said, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let it be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now that does not mean shun. He said, let them be to you as a Gentile, as someone outside of the covenant community, as an unbeliever, or as a, as a tax collector, which was someone who was hurting, or even, even doing harm to the church, the covenant community, hurting the church with his unrepentant sin. So you love him by calling that person to repent and to abstain from the supper until he does, that he might not face God's judgment. As 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about, Paul writes, This is why some of you are weak. 
sick, some have died. The right administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper, the right doing of baptism in the Lord's Supper, presumes church discipline that we would hold one another accountable. And church discipline is simply the church saying this we can no longer affirm that you're a Christian because you're not acting like it. You're living in unrepentant sin. Now we've said that there are really three things that are necessary in order to make up a, a biblical church. The gospel must be rightly preached. Baptism and the Lord's Supper should be rightly administered. These two presume that the church maintains a, a biblical church accountability with one another. There's a fourth characteristic that's necessary to make up a local church and really ties the rest of these together. It is this. I believe that church discipline presumes church unity. Church discipline presumes church unity. So as our church has grown for the last couple of months, especially, the last year or so, really, we haven't talked about this that much. There's a couple reasons for that. I normally preach through books of the Bible and you're going through John. We're going to continue to do that, but I also don't want to really don't want to lay a bunch of pressure on people who are coming to us to rest. That's not the point. Deep rest. So I don't, don't see this as me laying a bunch of pressure on you or a bunch of law on you. That's maybe a little spirit for So this morning and next week, we're going to work through what I like to call a doctrinal series. I don't like to say that these are Topical sermons, they're not really topical, for doctrinal preaching, teaching us something that the Bible teaches. So we're going to specifically look at this doctrine of church membership, what the Bible says. So here's my thesis. Here's my kind of the serious thesis. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this. Church membership is this it is a sojourner's declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. It is a sojourner's declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. So as we consider this section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, let me ask you this question. See if you can change gears with it. Who has ultimate authority? Who has ultimate authority? In modern times, most people would say that the state, each individual country, are sovereign nations. And they generally have ultimate authority over their citizens. Some exercise that authority in an unjust manner. We've seen that throughout history, and we can pick countries around the world where they do that in an unjust manner. Some have been just. Some there are gray areas. But most people in the world would say that the, the state, each individual sovereign nation, has ultimate authority. There are times when other sovereign nations will unite in order to defeat Someone who is misusing their authority. Think of well, any war, World War II in particular, when the good guys assembled together to defeat those who were misusing their authority. Essentially, what they're saying is no, that's wrong. What you were doing is wrong, and the rest of the world will not stand for it. But generally, we would believe that each country has authority over its own citizens. So if you think of it this way, if you want to start a school, if you want to start a business, you need the state's permission. Now, typically, uh, this is fairly simple. But really the same is true for sports clubs, for community groups, and it's even true for charities. 
So here's what I mean. Usually in our country, we, we seem to fill out some paperwork in order to be legal, right? It's fairly simple, although there's a fair amount of red tape involved. Usually it's tax related. The government wants its about right? Sometimes it's safety related. What about churches? The churches exist by permission of the state? This is the question I'm going for. The local churches exist by permission of the state. Certainly, we need to fill out the paperwork. So, for example, in order to be tax exempt, one of the things that the church, any church needs to do is have a constitution, we need to have bylaws. But most people in our culture view churches as being in the same category as like a sports club, the Y, or other kind of charity organization. In their view, a, a church is a, is a volunteer association. Anyone can join. Others view the church as a service provider, like a mechanic or a doctor, a place where you go to get a spiritual tune-up or a checkup. But are local churches clubs like the YMCA? Or are they service providers like a, a council that exists with permission from the state? It's true that we must obey and submit to the laws of our land, but we must be clear that the local church does not exist by permission of the state. The local church does not exist by permission of the state. The church exists by the express authorization of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate authority, not the state. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. He tells us that in Matthew chapter 28. And he gave his church the authority to spread and to grow. His church will advance like a will advance like a wave that cannot be stopped. The boundary lines of nations cannot stop the church. Executive orders from kings or presidents or prime ministers will not stop the church. Not even the gates of hell will slow down the church. Jesus is the ultimate authority. And if Jesus is the ultimate authority, what does it look like? What does it mean? To be citizens of the kingdom of God. How does this translate into the local church? The one that we actually know to. Again, look at verses 11 and 12. Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just read these two verses. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hand. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This morning there are three truths that we need to remember. Three truths for us to see today. The first is this. Once you were not a part of God's kingdom. Once you were not a part of God's kingdom. One of the big truths of the Bible is the fact that the, the Jews, the Israelites specifically, were God's chosen people. In fact, the entire Old Testament is focused on, on God and on his dealings with the Israelite people, the Hebrew people. Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Just you. Israel was a special nation. God has chosen Israel. In his sovereignty, as we've been 
reading about in Sunday school, in his sovereignty, God chose Abraham. In his sovereignty, God chose Isaac. God chose Jacob to be the patriarchs, the fathers of this special nation. And consider that when looking at all of the other countries that God could have chosen, he could have, all the other countries that he could have set apart for himself, it's odd that he chose Israel. Why not the English? It's been an empire for centuries. Why not the Irish? Love your accent. Or the Scottish. Why not the Egyptians? They've been around since forever, it seems. Why not the Americans? We chose Israel. And we may not understand why he chose Israel. We also need to see that Israel was not chosen to be the, the sole beneficiary of God's blessing. They're not the only ones who are blessed. In fact, they're blessed through them. They're like a, like a funnel through which the whole world will be blessed. They're like a conduit through which the world will see the glory of God. Israel is not the only receiver of God's grace, but they are, however, the means by which God blessed the world. And so God made them distinct because he wanted the world to look at them. He wanted them to be separated. He called them out, beginning with Abraham, and he gave them distinctions. He wanted them to be distinct from all other nations of the world so that the world would wonder why they were so different. And so they would not be able to, to easily intermix with the other nations. He wanted them to be set apart. He wanted them to be holy. So God gave them differences for two reasons. Really, to call the world's attention to them, that the world would see them. Let's face it, the Jews have had the attention of the world since the beginning. And really, to keep them separate from the rest of the world. The reason the Jews had such, for example, strict clothing laws, such strict dietary laws, and marriage laws, and worship laws, and festival laws, and customs laws, and land laws, and etc., and on and on. The reason that they had these things was so that they would not simply fit into other cultures, that they wouldn't simply fit into other societies. That was God's plan. They were so distinct that the rest of the world had to notice them. The world would look at them and say, what is this? What kind of God do these people have? Or even, who has a God like the Israelites? It's their special status as God's people is meant to be a witness. They were to be a testimony to the world of the one true God. What happened? Why did things go so wrong? Instead of seeing themselves as a witness, Instead of seeing their distinctions as a way to proclaim the glory of God and to reach people for Him, instead it became an excuse for, for bringing themselves glory. They even looked at the other nations and said, We want to be like them. We want to be like they have. We want to be just like all the other nations. They wanted to bring themselves glory and it became an excuse for pride and selfishness. Especially by the time of Christ, Pharisees. Filled with pride that they were so different than everybody else. 
Israel failed. They kept the ceremonies and the rituals, at least for a while, in various times, but they forgot the morality, they forgot the spirituality, we can say. They forgot the faith. Their belief, their system of religion was all external. They had no message. They forgot the one who had chosen them in the first place. And that's where the Gentiles came That's where the Gentiles came Look again at verses 11 and 12. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Now in this passage, Paul is not talking about their past state of sinfulness, as he's writing to the, to the Ephesian Christians. He covered that in verses 1 through 4, uh, really verses uh, 1 through 10 of this uh, chapter 2. But in verses 1 through 4, you can read of their past state of sinfulness. What he's actually saying here is he's talking about our past state of alienation. He says, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember that you used to be alienated from the kingdom of God. You're not Jewish. You are alienated from God's kingdom. You have nothing to do. You are alienated from Christ, even, from the Messiah, from the Savior. The reason he wants us to remember is because remembering makes us more thankful for our salvation. Remembering makes us more thankful for our salvation. That's why we observe communion, to remember Christ's death on the cross for our sins. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. Now, not only are we as Gentiles, or the uncircumcision, as he says, not only are we alienated physically or ethnically from God, from the promises of the Old Testament, we're also alienated spiritually. One thing I've noticed about religion here in the Bible Belt, we are part of the Bible Belt, one of the things that I've noticed is that that many, if not most people, actually believe in God, or claim to believe in God. But they also believe that because they have some sort of loose connection to church, if their grandmother's a member of the church down the street or whatever, they think they're okay. They call themselves Christians. But nothing in their life backs up that claim. Occasional church attendance even proves nothing. Occasional church attendance proves nothing. Remember, Christian, before you submitted to Christ's call on your life, you were completely alienated, Paul says. You were completely cut off from God. Paul tells us five ways here in which we were alienated. It's really verse 12. First, we were Christless. We were Christless, separated from Christ. Literally, it means without Christ, without a Savior, without a Messiah. You had no hope. Of a Messiah. We had nothing to look forward to, nothing to look back on. Listen, Paul is telling his readers that because of their ethnic alienation, because they were Gentiles, they had no hope of a Savior. They had no anticipation of deliverance, no hope of a, of a coming judgment that would make all the wrongs right. There was no judge for them who would punish evil and reward good. There was no hope of a day of vengeance. They had none of the Old Testament. It wasn't written for them. 
And if there is no hope of the day of judgment, if there's no hope of the day of justice, then, then life truly is survival of the fittest. Do we understand that? Okay, if there's no hope that there will be justice one day, then life is survival of the fittest. The job of judgment just goes to the strongest of us. Ones who are able to put to death the weakest among us. We see this happening every day. There's no hope in the world. Truly, this survival is He says, at one time you were, you were Christless, you were saviorless. Then he says, we were aliens. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. God's, that is God's chosen, set-apart, covenantal people. In the early days of the Old Testament, God was literally the king of Israel. God had built a, a theocracy. He built a nation, and that nation was the recipient of his blessing. They received his special love. That nation had a special arrangement with him. He said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. He led them personally. He led them in the desert personally. The pillar of fire at night and cloud every day. Paul is saying here that the Gentiles are aliens. Now there are a few Gentiles in the Old Testament who entered into the nation, became a part of God's chosen people. We've talked about this before. We mentioned Ruth in Sunday school. Rahab is another one. But overall, Gentiles did not accept the God of Israel as the one true God. And as a result, they were aliens. They had no eternal community. They had no eternal kingdom. They had no eternal king. They were outside of the kingdom of God. Before your salvation, you were aliens, separated from the kingdom of God. And he says that we were covenantless. Christless, Aliens and were covenantless. Specifically, he says, strangers to the covenants of promise. A person without Jesus Christ, obviously is Christ Messiah, the Saviorless, stateless, not a part of any, uh, not really, not a part of God's economy, not a part of God's people, not a part of His world, not citizens of heaven, we're not a part of God's kingdom, and we're covenantless. We're strangers to the covenants of promise. What is the promise? Well, it's the promises to Abraham from Genesis chapter 12. That's the overriding promise, the big picture. And then inside of that picture, do you remember what he promised Abraham? Land, seed, blessing. Inside of that big picture, there are other covenants as well. There's the Mosaic covenant, the Levitic covenant, the covenant of David, on your throne. Your son will sit forever. What's being Christ? The new covenant. All of these say that God has promised to bless them, to prosper them, to multiply them, to save them, to redeem them, to give them a kingdom, to give them a king. And all of these amazing promises and covenants that God made, He made with His people. And Gentiles are strangers to all of it. They had no promise from God. 
They had no guarantee. They had no security. Nothing. That was us. Then he, then he said that makes us hopeless. That's the fourth one. Hopeless. Having no hope in the world, he says. If you do not have Christ, if you do not have a Messiah, if you do not have a kingdom to belong to, if you do not have any promises to cling to, then you don't have any hope. You're completely alone in the world with nothing. There's no one to cling to. No God to help us walk through the valley of the shadow of death. No co-citizens to walk with us, to pray with us, to weep when we weep, to rejoice when we rejoice. We are without hope and without God in the world. We are alone. Utterly and completely alone. But if you're reading ahead here, there is another word. And it's the word that I believe is the most important word in all of Scripture. This is the second truth I want us to see today. Verse 13 is the word but. But now in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, by killing the hostility. Jesus comes in here, and he flips everything upside down. Before, there was no peace. But now, in Christ, there is peace. That separation that he's speaking about, that hostility between us and, and the kingdom has been torn down. Look at verses 15 and 16. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, and by killing the hostility. All those who claim Christ, all those who come to him by faith for salvation, whether Jew or Gentile. Come to the cross. Gentiles no longer have to become Jewish. They no longer have to follow the commands and the ordinances in order to be reconciled to them. In fact, the only way to become citizens of the kingdom of God is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here is that it doesn't matter if you were born into it. The only way to enter into the kingdom is through Jesus, through his work on the cross. Same is true for us. No one is born into the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. You have to enter through Jesus' atoning work on the cross. You have to repent and believe. You have to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And this brings peace, he says. Real, everlasting peace. Peace with other believers. Peace with God. Verse 17 says that Jesus came and preached peace. It actually means that he evangelized peace. He gospeled peace. He proclaimed the good news of peace. Right at the very start. Before he could even physically speak as a baby, 
the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Peace. When Jesus came, he brought, or actually he, better to say he was, peace. He unites all believers to himself and to each other. Our God is a God of peace. And through Jesus' work on the cross, we believe in him. We've been, we've been brought together to him. Verse 18 says, For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to one spirit to the Father. We've been united. All those who have come to Christ, we've been united to one spirit, the Holy Spirit of the Father. This is the truth. Truth is, we have been united together with him, and as a result of that, look what Paul writes in verses 19 and 22. He says in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints with members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, goes into our holy temple in the Lord. In him who also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the third truth that we need to remember this morning. There's a lot in you about the world. This is what I want us to see. That for those of us who are believers, we are now fellow citizens. We're fellow citizens. Paul finishes this passage about the unity found in Christianity by painting a picture here, a word picture. He does it in three different ways to illustrate his point about how both Jew and Gentile have been united together in Christ. So look at these three pictures. First, he calls us fellow citizens. He calls us the household of God. And then down in verse 21, he calls us a holy temple. I want to show you all of these really, really briefly. First he says, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Paul essentially says, now, therefore, as a result of everything I just pointed out, that apart from Christ, you are separated from the commonwealth of Israel. You're not a part of the, of the, of the kingdom of God. As a result of everything we've just established, because we're all one, because we've been made one in Christ, because we have access and peace with God, we're no longer strangers and aliens. We are no longer strangers and aliens. And that word for stranger means somebody who's an outcast. It doesn't just mean somebody you don't know. It means somebody that's an outcast. Somebody who is who is wretched, vile, and rotten. A keep them away type of person. Not someone you would invite to your house. But that's no longer true. You're now fellow citizens with all the saints. We're no longer aliens or strangers. We're citizens of the kingdom. And we, and we now enjoy all the benefits and privileges of the citizens of God's kingdom. Second, he says here, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are members of the household of God. We're not only citizens of the kingdom, we're actually a part of God's family. Think about that. The king not only says, you are my citizens, but he says, you're my family. Come right in here. 
seat at my table. Sit with me. I might show you. Not just strangers. We're not just naturalized citizens about to live in the kingdom. We're a part of God's kingdom. We've been adopted as his very children. We are fellow heirs. We are in God's family, seated at the head of the table. And then third down in verse 21, he tells us that we are a holy temple. We're a holy temple with Christ as our cornerstone. It is Christ who's holding the whole thing together. Look again at verses 21 and 22. The end of verse 20 says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The building, the building is still under construction. That's what he's saying here. This new community of God is growing into a holy temple of the Lord. And God already dwells in his temple, even though it's still being built. Even though it is still growing. Our position in Christ Jesus is that we are fellow citizens of his kingdom. We are members of the household of God. We are part of God's family. We're a holy temple. We've said that the, the kingdom of God is already and not yet. It hasn't yet come fully true. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if, if you are saved, if you have repented of your sins and believed in Christ, then you are part of God's kingdom. But the kingdom is not yet. Jesus will one day return to judge, to destroy sin and death, to fully and finally establish his kingdom. So then we need to seek refuge. We need to seek refuge in God's outposts, in his embassies. That's what the local church is. An embassy. It's an outpost of the kingdom. It's a place on earth where the citizens of the kingdom of God can, right now, at this moment, find asylum, find recognition, find other citizens. Jonathan Lehman, author, says a church member is someone who walks through the embassy doors claiming to belong to the kingdom of Christ. Hello, my name is Christian. The embassy official taps a few keys and says, Yep, I see your records here. Here's your pastor. You're safe. As members of a local church, Christians now enjoy many of the rights, benefits, and obligations of citizenship. Even though the kingdom is not yet, even though we're living in a foreign land. And if you watch the news, we're living in a foreign land. If you look at your family, we're living in a foreign land. Look at your neighbors. You know this. You know this truth. We, Logan's Hill Church, we need to remember to look at ourselves in this way as an embassy of the kingdom of God, as a, an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. We are strangers in a strange land. We are aliens and soldiers here while we wait for Jesus' return. Now, church membership is more than this. 
but it can't be anything less. Because we, we start here because Jesus didn't leave us to govern ourselves and, and to declare ourselves his citizens. We all know people who claim to be Christians. And yet you look at their life and you don't, you don't see it at all. There's no truth. No evidence. Merely claiming, I'm a Christian, doesn't make you one any more than claiming, I'm an American, makes you an American. There has to be actual proof. You need the right paperwork, the right heritage, the right place of birth, whatever. You can't just say I'm an American. You have to actually be able to be one. It's the same thing with being a Christian. Jesus left an institution in place that both affirms us as believers and it helps us shape the direction for our Christian lives. The embassy-like kind of authority of a local church gives anyone who states the words, I'm with Jesus, it gives them the opportunity to show the world that those words actually mean something. So when you walk into this sense, this outpost of the kingdom of God, it's out there, right? This outpost of the kingdom of God. You walk into this church and you identify yourself as a Christian. We look at your credentials. And we say, yes, you are. You're a part of us. You're a part of God's kingdom. And, and, and the world should say, that guy, that lady, she's a Christian. Those people, they're Christians. The local church guards the reputation of Christ by sorting out those who are citizens and those who are not. There are a lot of people who claim to be, and yet are not. The local church enables the world to look at the people of God and see an authentic look at His holiness, at His majesty. Not simply a group of people who all say something different about God. Church membership, being a part of a church, how the world knows who, who represents Jesus. The true church is one in which the gospel is rightly preached. We proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. Without the gospel, there is no church. The true church is one in which the ordinances of Christ are rightly administered. For baptism, in baptism, we are able to say, He belongs to Christ. She belongs to Christ. And in the supper, we are able to say, We all, we belong to Christ who died for our sins. The true church is one in which we do not let one another eat in an unworthy hand. We do not let one another eat and bring judgment upon ourselves because of our unrepentant sin. Instead, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The true church is one of which its members declare their citizenship to be in Christ's kingdom. Jesus said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. The true church says, He is our God. Or as we look at this again, I pray that we would take these things to heart. That we would seek asylum in your church. Rest. That we would be able to come together with other believers, other Christians, other family members. 
say, we are his people. He is our God. And we can long for the day when Christ returns. The judge will quicken the dead. And we will no longer be aliens and strangers, but citizens. Children, eating a birthday with the very suffering. Praise to Jesus' name.